see you all, and today is the last uh, of our series on in. Um, sorry, I'll start again. Today is the last of our series on generosity, and for the last four weeks, particularly, we've been looking at the seasons of generosity. And um, when we looked at the autumn as a season of harvest and thankfulness, and is that going to work for me? Yes. Oh, hello. Right. Okay. We looked at the autumn of a season of th- harvest and thankfulness, a celebration of provision. A wonderful opportunity to grow in generosity. Laura shared with us about the rich young ruler who found Jesus' generosity challenge just a little bit too much and walked away. We um, looked at winter and avoiding the temptation to hoard and to hold on to our resources, even though we might be tempted to out of fear because times get tough. And we looked at the parable of the rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns before um, he could, um, and then died before he could enjoy the benefit of it. Last week, Will was sharing with us about spring and about signs of life and hope for change and looking at Zacchaeus and how he was hated, corrupt and rich and yet experienced a complete turnaround and transformation after encountering Jesus, um, who already knew Zacchaeus' name and already affirmed his identity. I loved this quote from Will last week. The transformed heart will say, what is giving to someone who has been given so much? And today we're going to look at the summer, the summer of generosity. In seasonal terms, summer seems like the most relaxed time of the year. You know, we can sit back a bit, we can chill, enjoy the weather. I look at some of your Instagram posts and I can see that you are enjoying the weather um, and the uh, beautiful sunshine. But in the summer, nature is actually very busy. Plants are in full growth. There is a massive increase in biodiversity. Any gardener or farmer will tell you, I'm going to check this with David wherever he is, um, in fact there's more than one farmer now in the place, will tell you that summer is the time when you have to work really hard to keep the weeds in check and maintain the best conditions for plant growth. And no growth will be possible at all in the summer if it hadn't been for the hard work carried out in earlier seasons. So it's in summer that you reap the benefit of the investment of seasons through the year. And in the good times, you reap the benefits of the generosity sown in earlier seasons of life. We're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. It's quite short. There's only four verses. You're welcome to look it up on your phone or in your Bible, or I'm going to put the words up here. And it's called the widow's offering. I'm going to read it to you. It says, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The context of this story, a little bit, is that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and he's been specifically challenged by the religious authorities again and again. It's quite, having, he's having quite a hard time of it. Um, you can read it through the previous chapter. They question him on where his own authority comes from, on whether or not they should pay taxes to the Romans, about the end time resurrection and about remarriage. And just before this, he actually warns the crowd specifically to beware of teachers of the law, he says, who make a massive big show of their own status and self-importance while actually pursuing systems that continue to squash people and downtrod them, widows particularly. And so this short passage is in direct contrast to all of that. It seems like Jesus is there and he's teaching and he just sort of looks up 
And you can, I, can, I can, I don't know how you imagine Jesus. I can imagine him just taking a big sigh, <sighs> looks up, sees what's going on with this widow. She's just putting her offering into the box very humbly, almost invisible, virtually anonymous. And yet Jesus kind of looks over and then he draws the attention of the whole crowd to her and makes this incredibly profound observation. He says, the plain truth is this, the plain truth is this, this is from the message, that this widow has given by far the largest offering today. And I don't know about you, but I can almost hear the disciples saying, what? What is he on about? How can that be true? You must be joking, aren't you, Jesus? You're having a laugh, aren't you? Look at all those people giving all their money, the rich swanning around. You see, the system of giving in the synagogue was very public. They're basically like these big boxes. They call them the trumpets. And they have this, so these trumpet sort of shaped things on top so everyone can see. People giving stuff, putting it in. It's very public. The culture around the temple seems to be all about how much people are giving, the amounts that they bring. And here's Jesus highlighting this widow's simple offering of almost nothing. Two small coins. And yet, according to Jesus, this is the largest offering. It's very profound. And Jesus isn't looking at the amount she gave, is he? He's not really impressed with the amount of money she gave, or actually he's not really impressed with the amount of money anyone gives. In the synagogue, and maybe in some church traditions down the centuries, people have got the idea that money can buy them favour with God, that somehow God is impressed with wealth and status. And that is so not true. The flip side, he's also, he's also not down on it either, but he's not impressed by it. And in this context, people were impressed by it. With Jesus, it is so not about how much money you have. You could be filthy, stinking rich, rolling in cash, born with a silver spoon in your mouth, plenty to spare. Or you could be as poor as a church mouse, living off next to nothing, always aware of the next need, always looking to see where the next bit of food is coming from. It really doesn't matter to Jesus. He's not interested in the amount. With him, it is all about the attitude. It's all about the heart. So I looked up uh, an old commentary, a guy called William Barclay. 1953, this commentary was written. He was commenting on this passage. He said, a gift which is unwillingly extracted, a gift which is given with a grudge, or a gift that is given for the sake of prestige or self-display, loses more than half its value. The only real gift, which is the inevitable outflow, is the gift which is the inevitable outflow of a loving heart. The gift which is given because the giver cannot help giving it. And we all know the difference, don't we, between something given out of duty or something given for show or something given out of genuine love. And Jesus makes this point that when we simply give out of the spare change we have, it doesn't really cost us anything and therefore it doesn't really mean very much. He said in verse 4, all these others made offerings that they'll never miss. But she gave extravagantly from what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. He's highlighting the really genuine sacrifice of this widow. Here's Barclay again, just commenting on, on this. They, no doubt, he's talking about the, um, for other, the other givers, they, no doubt, gave having nicely calculated how much they could afford to give. She gave with that utterly reckless generosity, which could give no more. I love that phrase. 
Giving does not begin to be giving until it hurts. A gift only shows our love when we ourselves have had to do without something or we've had to work doubly hard in order to give it. How few people give to God like that, says Barclay. It's a pretty well-known passage, and it's quite easy to be looking at that and thinking, oh, yeah, okay, so it's, it's giving when it, giving to God costs you, giving when it hurts. I've found as I think about it that... Um, if I'm not careful, I get into a hole, oh, well, I've got to do that because it's the right thing to do. And I noticed something about the words that Jesus uses here, and I was thinking about this and doing a bit of reading around. And I noticed that in the NIV version of this, um, Jesus uses the words wealth and poverty to describe these two contrasting situations. So in verse 4 in the NIV, all these people gave gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. And most of the other translations pretty much say the same thing. Some of them switch the word wealth for abundance. But all of them use a very similar phrase to she gave out of her poverty. And in a literal and a material sense, they are all correct. That is what happened. In practical terms, the rich were giving from a place of having a lot. They seem to have plenty, and the widow doesn't seem to have very much, and she's giving from that place. But I do want us to flip these words and look at that differently because I really believe that what's actually going on here at a deeper level is that she is giving out of abundance and they are giving out of poverty. Now that might sound odd to you. I don't mean in material terms, I mean in spiritual terms. And I'm talking about a mindset shift. So when I say they are poor and she is rich, I'm not talking about their financial condition. I'm talking about their heart condition. And the heart condition leads to a mindset shift. And I think that's something that many of us can relate to. Now, a guy a few years ago, a guy called Danny Silk, wrote a book called Culture of Honour. And there's a chapter in there where he talks about how to experience true freedom by, and this is his phrase, developing a wealth mindset. Now, before you think that I'm going to start to teach you some kind of prosperity gospel, I'm really not. Okay, So let me explain what I mean. Because although Jesus didn't use this language, I'm pretty sure that you can apply it to this situation. Let me read you a bit of Danny Silk's book. This is, him, this is him writing. He's quite American. He's quite colloquial. Okay? The first mistake so many believers make when someone mentions wealth is to equate it to riches. But the idea that money makes someone wealthy is like suggesting that holding a football makes you an NFL quarterback. Riches or money are external conditions and wealth is an internal reality. Our insides will always manifest on our outsides. Yeah, I'm going to read the rest. For too many centuries, a religious fallacy has tried to rule the minds of believers and convince them that riches are the root of all evil, and thus the poorer you are, the more spiritual you are. This is Danny Silkstill. Somehow being a poor, weak, uneducated, lowly Christian is something God is cheering on in heaven. Yeah, just like you're cheering your kids on to be welfare-dependent high school dropouts. I'm fully aware, Danny Silk says, that in more recent decades, the American church has swung to the other extreme and experimented with a wealth gospel that has led many to pursue powerful Cadillacs and comfortable lifestyles rather than powerful lifestyles and the comforter. But a wealth mindset is not really about money or idolatry, it's about freedom. So in John 10.10, Jesus says, I've come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. And I looked up the Greek for abundantly, 
And it means, here's some words that describe it. Exceeding need. Over and above. More than is necessary. Something further. More. Much more. Superior. Extraordinary. Surpassing. Something going beyond. See, it seems to me that abundance is a heaven word. And when we sing spirit break out, like we have this morning, heaven come down. Part of heaven coming down and experiencing the kingdom of heaven for ourselves is about experiencing an abundance or a wealth. And God is interested in us having the kind of life that goes beyond, that goes further. He's already demonstrated his own abundance to us. I mean, he gave us everything. He was all in. We're going to celebrate that when we have communion in a few minutes. To those who choose to partner with him, God promises he will supply our needs with provision and blessing. Not always financially, not necessarily financially at all, but blessing and provision in all kinds of ways. As we go deeper, and it goes deeper than that, it goes right to our very core. You see, Genesis 1 says that we are made in the image of God. We're created to be God's representatives here on earth, created to reflect his glory, to build his kingdom, and yes, to rule over creation. In my book, that makes us sons and daughters of the king, which makes us royalty, princes and princesses. Now think about the royals. They know who they are, and they know what resources are available to them. And wealth is more than a material fact. It's actually a mindset. It's a whole way of thinking. And if you are rich, then you think like someone who's rich. And if you think like someone who's poor, then you won't be able to handle the responsibilities that come with the abundance of wealth. So as followers of Jesus, the truth is that in in God we are wealthy beyond our wildest imagination. We have access to the most incredible kingdom resources of heaven. That is a biblical and a spiritual reality. But it can be so easy to lose sight of that and live like someone who is actually poor. Irrespective of our actual material wealth, it's possible to have a poverty mindset. Do you get what I'm saying? Let's look at this a little deeper. Um, This is a table extracted from some work by a psychologist called Ruby K. Payne, who wrote a book called A Framework for Understanding Poverty. Now, this is quoted in Danny Silk's book, and I've reproduced part of it here. The work that Dr. Payne did was done to better understand the educational failures in the working classes in America and to help middle-class teachers better understand the influences that their children were coming to them with, having grown up in a poverty background, and and so therefore adapt their teaching and, um, and see some real breakthroughs. But it's very insightful in showing how people who live in very different worlds all actually share the same world. And so this chart shows how different classes view the world across various aspects of life. And I just want to say this, in quoting it, I'm not making any comment or judgment about what it says here. And I'm not, and I'm not implying anything about anyone here. I'm simply representing some of this research to illustrate my point about what it is to have a wealth mindset. But it is quite insightful. You'll see that, for example, in the area of money, somebody who has a poverty mindset says that money is to be used. Somebody with a middle-class mindset says that money is to be managed. And somebody with a wealth mindset says money is to be conserved or invested. If you take, for example, education, 
Somebody with a poverty mindset will say that education is valued as abstract, but not really as a reality. Whereas a middle-class mindset would say that education is crucial for climbing the success ladder and making money. And the wealth mindset would say education is a necessary tradition for making and maintaining connections. I like the one about love. I don't like it, I just, it's there. Poverty... A poverty mindset says that love is conditional on being liked. A middle-class mindset says that love is conditional on achievement. And a wealth mindset says it's conditional upon social standing and connections. Now, I'm not making a judgment about what that research finds, but that's the research. Okay? Um, For a very simple, practical illustration of what I mean by a poverty mindset, I want to focus just on one line of this, the line about food. We all like food, don't we? We all like going out for dinner. But where we go, how, where we choose to go and why we might choose to go there will probably differ according to someone's resource mindset. So, for example, when people who are genuinely poor go out to eat, they'll probably most likely choose a place where they can eat the most for less money. Because, you know, I'm talking big portion sizes, low prices, great value. I mean, I need to feel full. By the way, somebody told me when I moved to Winchester, if you're looking to entertain your kids cheaply on a Saturday in Southampton, the Odeon does kids' films for a pound on a Saturday morning, and then if you nip across the road to Ikea, you can get a kid's meatballs for two quid. Anyway. um, (laughs) If we are genuinely trying to survive, or we're uncertain about when we can eat again, then our relationship with food is going to be about how much can I get now. It's going to be about hoarding. And the food experience that will meet our needs more than likely is going to be an all-you-can-eat buffet. (laughs) By contrast, when someone who's perhaps a middle-class mindset goes out for food, their resources mean that they have more options to choose from. Therefore, it's less about the quantity and more about the quality. If the food doesn't taste good, they won't go back. If it's amazing, they'll pay extra and save up and go back again for a special treat. And it might be that, or it might be that while the food is okay in a certain restaurant, the experience in the restaurant itself was very poor. The service was lousy or the place just wasn't clean. Um, I have nothing against the Wagamamas up here. I'll just put that up there because um, we, we've been to Wagamamas two or three times since it opened in Winchester. I, the food's beautiful, but I personally have a problem with the service because their thing in Wagamamas is we're going to bring you the food as soon as it's hot. Therefore, when five of us are sitting around eating a meal, three of us have had our dinner while the other two are waiting for theirs. And for me, I'm like, it doesn't work for me. The food's beautifully tasted. I think we're going to try takeaway next time, but anyway. (laughs) Oh, and on the cleanliness thing, of course, Joe used to be an environmental health officer. So the first thing Joe does in any toilet is check, in in any restaurant, is check the cleanliness of the toilets. Okay? (laughs) Because it's a general indicator of the level of hygiene and the attitude to hygiene. And um, there are restaurant chains where we used to have great meals, but we're never going back again. Um, You can ask me that story later if you want to hear it. Um, So the middle class will recommend certain places to their friends. They'll check their ratings on TripAdvisor and exercise the choices that they possess. Do you get me? Okay. But what about the wealthy? You see, people who can have as much of the highest quality food they could ever want see food in a different way. More as a work of art. It's all about presentation. They are looking for elegance and beauty. Make it do something for me. Restaurants looking to serve the wealthy don't have cooks or chefs. They have 
food artists and creative sculptors. <laughs> and if a poor guy, if a poor guy goes into a restaurant for wealthy people, he is going to be really unimpressed <laughs> by the small amount of weird-looking food on his plate, and he's going to frankly think he's getting ripped off, isn't he? Here's a quote from Danny Silk: "Our class perspectives set us up to relate to resources in a certain way." If we have little, then we don't expect much more than getting our most basic needs met. But if we have more than enough, then we expect even the everyday experience of eating food to be an encounter with beauty. As you can see from this, a poverty mindset affects more than just how we choose our restaurants. Depending on our upbringing and our life experiences, it's possible to have loads of money. And yet, still have a poverty mindset. Here's a picture of someone in literature who、um, sort of epitomises that. Okay. In the、uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. He actually gave the word. He gave his name <laughs> to people who demonstrate these miserly tendencies, who hold on to things, who, despite having enough, hoard it. And when we do that. The impulse to hoard, be it food or money or anything else, is going to effectively prevent us from being generous. And we've seen from the widow in the story that it's also possible to have very little money, and yet have a mindset of abundance and generosity. Edward was talking about Carrie's kids, and my experience and that of many others is that when you visit a developing country, the people generally have very little, but go over and above. In their hospitality, making great sacrifices for their guests. What about us? When we go out to eat, how generous do we feel about tipping the waiters and the waitresses? They've served us. They've made the whole experience a pleasant one. They probably don't get paid very much. How do we think about how much we give them? Do we give them the minimum amount? Oh, how much do I spend? How much can I afford? Or do we go over and above to bless them? I want you to watch this video that、um, a guy posted a couple of years ago. It went viral. It's 850,000 hits on YouTube. Just Have a look at this. So, I just feel the need to share this with everybody. So,、um, I work for a pizza place. Obviously, pretty much all of you know this. And、um, we don't open until 12 o'clock today. But I was asked to come in a little bit early for a delivery. So,、um, you know, I I came in. And、uh, right as I got in, they we loaded up my car with the food, and I took it. And then、uh, when I got to this delivery, is to this church. And、um, they came out to my car, and they're like,、uh, "Take one pizza out of the seven or eight pizzas that they ordered," and they're like, "Bring it up to the pastor on on stage." And I was, I was like all like weirded out, like why, like this is so weird. And、um, you know, the most amazing thing happened. You know, this whole church came up. And gave me. Over seven hundred dollars for a tip. 
it's just truly amazing. You know, I've been having such a, a hard time lately. Just struggling to stay clean and everything. And I'm just trying to get my life back. And it just really, truly just amazes me that people that don't even know me just wanted to help me out that much. Blessed. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? See, God is a God of abundance. And he invited us to partner with him in this adventure. And that church did. And look at the result. Example, in our children's storehouse team, the team worked really hard to make sure that everything that's given away here is in great condition and the best possible quality. Sometimes that means saying no to donations, which are very kindly offered but not in the best condition. Some people might say, well, if you've got nothing, you should be grateful for anything. But Jenny and our team here are trying to demonstrate God's abundance mindset. We want to give the very best we can to the people we're partnering with. If you find generosity hard in a certain area of your life, then it's worth reflecting on your own attitude and asking God to show you if there's any kind of poverty mindset creeping in, a fear of not having enough, an uncertainty about the future, a need to hold on tightly to resources or somehow make things secure. Now, it's obviously wise to save appropriately and to make good financial decisions. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. But they need to come not from a place of fear, but a place of trust and confidence in a generous and abundant father. Danny Silk said this, the wealthy are accustomed to getting their way. Whatever they ask for, they receive. This creates a mindset of abundance. Having more than you could ever use and living in that reality builds a sense of obligation within the life of the wealthy class. They see their role in life as one of, here's a French term, noblesse obligé. It's a French term for the idea that means that people born into nobility or upper class must behave in an honourable and a generous way towards those less privileged. This kind of culture leads to a mindset of generosity where those who have favour and privilege see it as their responsibility to share their resources in a way which invests in the rest of the long-term benefits of society. There are eight billionaires who own the same wealth as the 3.6 billion people who form the poorest half of the world's population. And yet, some of those people are the most amazing givers. Bill and Melinda Gates basically giving away pretty much everything they've ever earned. They're donating money in the hopes of improving health care. We think it's our basic responsibility, they said. I watched this video, I would love to show you it, but it's really interesting. But Gates have basically sponsored this inventor who's created a machine that will go into the developing world and basically turn sewage sludge into drinking water and produce electricity at the same time. And Gates was there literally drinking the water. You know, um, astounding creativity from the investment of somebody who wants to use his wealth to make the world a better place. What if Christians see our lives as an opportunity to share our resources, whether that's big or small, in a way that invests in the long-term benefit of society. Now, we've got people here who earn pretty well, and we've got people here who don't earn very much, and all kinds of people in between. And as I said before, this is not about the amount of money. This is about what we do with it, what our attitude to it is. And 
how we share our time and energy. We've already talked about compassion. We've got people in our anti-trafficking prayer group who, whose, whose heart burns for justice and they invest time praying every month for people who are in desperate situations. We've got great stories that we'll hear over the next few weeks from the team who just went to Romania to help some of the poorest there, bring hope and healing. We talked about Karis kids already. Closer to home, I heard a story this week, yesterday, of somebody who's connected to our church community, been to Life Group once or twice, been rushed into hospital. One member of the group is organising cooking food um, for him, and another is providing childcare and doing laundry. Stunning generosity in our community. That is the kind of generosity God invites us into, the kind of abundance he demonstrates. You know, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Water into wine. An amazing prophetic guy called Julian Adams said this, my God can provide an overflow of wine at a party where people had already drunk too much. (laughs) God wants to pour out an abundance mentality, this is Julian Adams, which is based not on what I want, sorry, God wants to pour out an abundance mentality which is not based on what I need, but on an understanding of his goodness and his generosity. So do I settle at just enough when there is more than enough? We can believe for the impossible, the extravagant, the unnecessary, This is prosperity for the sake of community who then look and say, wow. Two weeks ago, we asked you to share stories of what God was doing, and somebody wrote this on the link. In reception class of the school I work in, I prayed for a student's eczema, and his facial skin got totally cleared. Isn't that amazing? Joe this week prayed for one of, our, um, one of the team who's um, helping us with the building. In fact, two weeks ago, she prayed over the phone for his back, which wasn't very well, and then didn't hear anything. He came back two weeks later. He said to her, um, oh, thank you, my back got so much better, but then I did something else to it, so I haven't got around to telling you. And she said, okay, well, and Joe in that moment had a decision to make. Am I going to pray again? In the, not, just, not just over the phone, but in real life. So she said to him, well, would you like me to pray again? So he said, yes, I'd love that. And because over the phone, Joe had said, okay, so just put your hand on your back. Immediately, this guy, as soon as Joe offered to pray for him, put his hand on his back. (laughs) It's wonderful. Where is God challenging us to cultivate an abundance mindset? Where do we need to respond to his generosity with our generosity? Pardon? And his back's better again. Sorry, thank you for that. Where do we need to renounce fear and embrace trust? What miracles are we waiting for or praying for? Where is he inviting us to step out and take a risk? How are we stewarding our time, our energy, our money and reflecting his generosity and his abundance? Have we reviewed our giving recently? Have we looked at our money? Have we looked at our diaries? Are we on a generosity adventure? Last thing, someone else in the church wrote something on that feedback page which really captures the essence of this journey They said, God has brought us through a period of incredible growth, change and provision. We have learned to declare God's goodness based on his promises and not on our circumstances. I don't believe for a minute that the widow who gave two coins had a poverty mindset. This lady was not giving out of her poverty. She was giving out of her abundance. She had a huge heart in the eyes of God. This lady was rich. She knew the generosity of the king. She must have done it. It would be the only way that she could humbly give him everything. Rather than holding on to or hoarding what little she had, she obviously spent her lifetime cultivating an attitude of generosity and sacrifice, trusting in God to look after all her needs. 
She knew that she was a daughter of the king and the royalty get the resources they need. And I found that incredibly freeing and incredibly inspiring and a fantastic example for us. And so we're just going to celebrate communion.